welcome our uh, chapel next door and our venue across the way, and then also certainly our Cactus Campus and our uh, new Northridge Campus. So welcome to all of you for our time in the Word. You know, as many of you know, we're in a a series here uh, on the fall. We're simply looking at how fallen human nature plays itself out in the culture that we live in. And uh, one of the things, this isn't in my notes, one of the things that I kind of love about what we're doing here right now is that as I've been thinking about this over the last month, there's a sense in which fallen human nature is so incredibly predictable. All of you know that. I woke up this morning and I, uh, I, I, I brushed my teeth and I took my antacid, that's on you guys, and, uh, and I, um, I went out and did what I always do every morning, I, I feed the dogs, that's my job, and I let them out. And when I walked out into my backyard, I noticed it rained all night. And I literally started to smile right then, because I thought, it's going to be a little thin in church today. And I just wish I could be a part of that conversation sometimes. Like, hey, hey, honey, got to get ready for church. I'm not going to church. It's raining. <laughs> really? It's raining. I, that's an Arizona thing. Do you all know that? I mean, back in the Midwest, you would never use rain or even snow as an excuse not to do anything. It's actually the opposite in the Midwest. What we would experience is that in the summer, if you finally got a beautiful sunny day, the conversation will go like this, honey, get ready for church. I'm not going to church. It's too nice of a day. And that's kind of the way we dealt with it back in the Midwest. But you guys are like really predictable and I love you. And, uh, and that's what we're doing in this series is we're trying to look at what's happening in our culture at large. So forget about sunny days, rainy days. We're looking at what's happening in our culture at large today and how the fall of humankind, what the Bible says we've all experienced from birth, is playing itself out. And it's not a downer of a series. It's a very positive series because then what we're doing is looking at how in Christ we can reverse the curse, what God says we can do to sort of go against the grain of the fall inside us and in our culture and and make a much better, more sanctified uh, place, at least in our lives and in our church. So uh, great topic before us. We've already looked at the frantic pace of culture. We've taken a look at the values of our culture or lack thereof. And and today we're looking at this idea of a limited view of God. And uh, I I think you guys are going to really appreciate Uh, what the Bible has to say to us today. So before we dive in, let me do this. Uh, Cactus and Venue and Chapel and Northridge, let's all bow together uh, for our time in the Word. God, we thank you for your grace. We've sung about it today, Lord, your mercy, your grace uh, that's upon all of us as your creatures. And Lord, certainly when we take you up on your offer of salvation, it explodes in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we talk about what a more set-apart life looks like in a fallen culture, that, God, you would help us to understand not just the world around us, but what you're doing in the world around us, and even most importantly, in our very lives. That's our prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So let's start real simple here this morning, and let's talk about something that all of us know about life up to this point, and it's simply this, that we all know that in life, more is not always better. Give me a head now that y'all have experienced that. More is not always better. Uh, More food is not always better, amen? Because it'll make you fat. More booze is not always better. It'll make you an alcoholic. 
More TV is not always better. It will make you a couch potato. <laughs> this is good for Scottsdale. More toys is not always better because you can only enjoy so much and you'll eventually become a full-blown materialist if you're not careful. There's even a great article in Fast Company, a magazine for business people uh, that I read this week that was talking about how more technology, meaning more emails, more texting, more being glued to your phone, actually leads to less productivity in the business world. And the reason is, is because business hinges on relationship, face-to-face, -face, human interaction. And if you have too much of this, you're actually not as effective in your business. But we've all learned this in life. There are plenty of times, plenty of scenarios where more is not always better. Whether it's food, alcohol, TV, our toys, or even technology, we know that that is true. So this might shock you. This might even offend some of you, but hang in there with me. You'll realize this is true. When it comes to God, there is an element in which this is true as well. It's true, at least when it comes to how we try to get more of him, especially in this fallen world of ours, using our own faculties, the Bible is gonna tell us today that we are extremely limited, left on our own, and try as we might, that old maxim that more is not always better is true, even spiritually speaking. I wanna show you what I mean. And to kickstart our discussion today, I want us to read a passage found in the Bible. We're gonna pretty much stick to one passage today. We're gonna to throw a few others in, but we're gonna do a deep dive in one passage in the Bible found in the book of Romans. It's tucked away at the tail end, this is important, of a very lengthy discussion about God's sovereignty, our responsibility, the nation Israel, which are like put together really difficult and dicey subjects, and anticipating that his readers were going to have some confusion understanding these weighty issues, Paul the Apostle adds a powerful postscript to the discussion. Let's read it together. Follow along as I read from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. And then when you see caps, by the way, in the New American Standard Bible, it doesn't mean God is yelling. What it means is that he's quoting the Old Testament. So let's read verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, this passage, as I mentioned, is a postscript to some really heavy and difficult discussions that Paul the Apostle is having with the Romans here. And you might be asking right now, well, how in the world does this passage say that we have this limited view of God or that more is not always better when it comes to our fallen standpoint before God? And that's a good question. And to answer this, I want to note a couple of principles that this passage is sharing with us about God, you and me, and the spiritual realm. So first, notice that it is clearly telling us that on our own, that's key, on our own, from a purely humid vantage point, we cannot know God. This is really important that you guys dial into this, that on our own, 
from a purely human or fallen vantage point, we cannot know God. This is huge. It's telling us that from our fallen standpoint in life, God is inaccessible using just our own faculties to find him. And to make sure that we get this point, Paul the Apostle is actually utilizing here a powerful literary technique called parallelism. Parallelism. Watch this. In short, when you look closely at verses 33 to 35, you will notice that Paul makes three statements about God. And then in verses 34 and 35, he asks three rhetorical questions about God. So three statements, three questions. And then watch this. He lines them up neatly in a one-to-one correspondence where each statement lines up with each question to hammer home the point. Let me show you what I mean by this chart because it's not as complicated as we might think. In verse 33, Paul makes three statements. He makes a statement about the knowledge of God, the decisions that God makes, and the actions that God does. And then in verses 34 and 35, those were those caps, those quotations from the Old Testament. He asks three rhetorical questions. He asks a question about God's mind. He asks a question about who in the world could be his counselor. And then he asks a question about what, if anything, God would ever owe us based on our actions. So very briefly, let me walk these through you. Let me walk these uh, things with you through because you're going to notice here that this adds up to a very interesting view of God in this fallen world. So notice verse in verse 33, uh, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So he gives a statement about the knowledge of God. And the key here is that word depth. Paul the Apostle is basically insinuating here that God's knowledge is so deep that we cannot plummet, that we could never understand the knowledge of God. It's so deep, deeper than we could ever go. And the reason that we know that that's what he's saying is because he parallels this, again, it's parallelism, with a question in verse 34 about the mind of the Lord. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? This is a quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 13, and it's a rhetorical question. Do you all know what a rhetorical question is? (laughs) A rhetorical question is when Dave comes in late one night and his wife says, why are you so late? She's not looking for an answer. Do we all understand that? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, is because I was insensitive and I'm an idiot. So a rhetorical question, not that you really are, Dave. Yes, you are. Okay. The rhetorical question is, it's something that we know the answer to. So let's answer this together. When it says or asks, who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the answer to that? No one. So the idea here is that when it comes to God's thoughts, When it comes to what he is thinking, you and I are clueless. We have no idea. They are too deep for us to plumb. We don't know the mind of the Lord. You know that old saying, penny for your thoughts? If you said to God, hey God, penny for your thoughts, he would say, keep the penny. Because you do not know my thoughts. That's the first parallel. Now, hang on to that. Notice the second parallel going on here because it sort of accelerates. And it begins as well with a statement about the decision-making capability of God. It says how unsearchable are his judgments. That word judgments literally means a decision. 
When a judge makes a judgment, it's a decision that that judge is making. And God makes decisions all the time about this world and salvation history and your very lives. And here's the point, because people ask me all the time, why did God do what he did in my life? Why did God choose to do that? I have an answer for you. I haven't the foggiest idea. That's the answer. Because that's what it's saying here, that his judgments, his decisions are unsearchable. That word literally means inscrutable. Or as one commentator says, impossible to understand. And and again, we know that that is it because the, the parallel question here is a brutal question. It's continuing the quote from Isaiah 40 verse 13. And the question is, who became or has become God's counselor? And again, what's the answer to that? No one. I love this one. I mean, this is really kind of funny when you think about it. I mean, there's no example in the scripture where God ever went to a human being and said, hey, Rich, can I get your opinion on this? Could I seek your advice on this? I mean, it's silly to think that God would even do that because God is not interested in our advice. He's God and he's gonna decide the things that he decides and he's not looking for a counselor. So, he had knowledge too deep to plumb, we now have a, a decision maker who's really not interested in outside help. And then notice a third and final parallelism here. We're gonna add all this up in a minute here. And, and it has to do with God's actions. It has to do with God, at God's actions because it says in verse 33, how unfathomable his ways. This is actually a very powerful word, word picture here. Uh, the, in the original Greek, it literally means, now watch this, how undetectable are his tracks. It it pictures God when it says his ways. God is on the move. He's on a journey. He's doing something in this world. And yet he's doing something in such a way that you and I do not see his footprints. Jesus said this. He said the spirit is like the wind. It blows in and out and you don't see where it's coming from and where it's going. That's the actions of God in this fallen world. And again, the question is brutal in verse 35. It's a quote from Job 41. It says, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? Again, it's simply a poetic way of saying that that when you do things for God, he doesn't owe you a doggone thing. I, and I know it sounds brutal, but I, and, and again, this is very life applicable. How many times do we, I hear people say this all the time. They, they'll say something like this. They'll say, you know, I made a deal with God. And I'll say, really? Tell me about that deal that you made with God. Well, you see, I told God that if he does this and I promise that I will do this or never do that. You've heard people say that, right? I always laugh at that because I thought, really, you think God's going to be bound by that? No, the scriptures is telling us God functions very differently than that. We can't control his actions through our actions. So let's do this now. Let's add this all up. It's really important for where we're going right now. We have knowledge too deep to plumb. We have a mind that we cannot know. We have decisions that we cannot begin to comprehend. He doesn't want our advice or input on those decisions. We have actions that we cannot even trace. And he never owes us anything in response to our actions. This is our understanding of God in a fallen world when it is just our fallen and finite minds and hearts trying to know him. In other words, 
as we're talking about the fall, this is our default position, all of humanity before God in a fallen world. As Walker Percy would say so well in his book from the 1980s, we are lost in the cosmos in our fallen position. Or as Reinhold Niebuhr would say in one of his classic books, and this is a paraphrase, but I love this. He says, when the finite looks into the infinite, he gets dizzy. Or as Calvin would say, and this is a great quote right from his commentary on this passage. He says, if anyone will seek to know more than what God has revealed, we'll get to that in a minute. He says, he shall be overwhelmed with the immeasurable brightness of inaccessible light. That's God in this fallen world. So maybe now you can see why I say, now you get it, more is not always better when it comes to our default position before God. Because our default position before him in this fallen world is that we cannot know him on our own. That's Bible 101. Simply using our fallen and finite minds and hearts to understand him. And when people ask why, it's really not hard to understand. We're fallen and the depth of his thinking is too vast. His decisions and judgments are unsearchable. His actions, we can't even track. He's God and we are not. And the point is that when we try in our default position as human beings to understand him and know him on our own, we end up going down a road in which more is not better, and quite frankly, we even get wrong and twisted views of him if we continue down that road. Because again, we're trying to understand him from our fallen standpoint. No, Ephesians 2.12 really nails it. It says that in our fallen position before God, we are without hope and without God in the world. In a very real way, and this is the kindest way I can say it, we have a very limited view of God. And once you understand this, this is where it becomes really positive. You can now make sense of what's happening in the world around you and why it seems so varied and why it even seems so crazy at times. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to use the whiteboard here today. So uh, Cactus Venue, Chapel, and, and Northridge, and, 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 and you need to try to dial into this. We'll hopefully get a good shot of it here so you can see it clearly. But I need you to use this as a visual for getting this idea of what's happening in our world today in light of what Romans 11 teaches us. So I put God way up here and I put humankind, obviously where we belong, down here. And there's a big gap between the two of us. That's our fallen position. Now, what I'm going to do is write on the board here right now the various ways that fallen human beings try to find God. As many of us know, we try to find God through philosophy, right? So philosophy is simply our intellectual reasoning. So everything from the Greeks to the Romans to the Middle Ages to the Enlightenment to today, all the philosophical arguments people have for who God is and what he's about, we try to reach God through our own philosophical reasoning. And then a second way that many people try to find God today, and this is close to philosophy, is through their own intuition. And so people will basically say, you've heard this before, well, I happen to think this about God. I call this barroom theology. You know, I think this about God. I think this about the spiritual realm. And we don't know if that's true or not. It's just what they tend to think makes sense in their own mind. But again, they're trying to find God. 
This one will shock you. Another way that many people try to find God is through what we call world religions. Most of the world religions, admittedly, are bottom-up institutions. It's their attempt to try to explain the divine, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or Scientology. I mean, all the major world religions, even the minor ones, all have one thing in common. They're trying to make sense of the divine from a human standpoint. And then, this is a very American thing, we have activism. Activism is a way to find God. So we simply do good things. We get involved in the community. We love our neighbor. We're active as human beings, and we think that has to bring us closer to God. And then you guys see this one all the time in Scottsdale. Um, people try to use nature to find God. How many times have you heard somebody say, I love to hike in the McDowell Mountains because I feel close to God? Again, these aren't wrong and bad things. Please see this. I mean, from philosophy to intu intuition to world religions to being good to nature. Uh, let's add one final one here. How about science? Uh, many scientists are believers. Uh, they are people who are trying to understand God from understanding the natural world. Uh, this is simply a sampling of all the ways that fallen human beings, from our vantage point, try to understand God. Now, here's what Romans 11 is saying to us. Try as you might in all these categories to understand God, you will still be left with a, a, an immense amount of white space in your understanding of him. There will be a, a, a significant gap. In other words, to make it very simple for you guys, there's one thing that every one of these things have in common, whether it's philosophy, intuition, world religion, activism, nature, science, and that is that no one is gonna find God through any of those mediums. And that's the point. We are way too fallen in our nature. That's what Romans 11 is saying. You can't understand the mind of the Lord, his decisions, his actions, using your own faculties and even these things that we've invented in this world in order to find God. 1 Corinthians 13 is a beautiful passage that talks about love and toward the tail end of it, it nails it when it says in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Have you ever thought what that means? It means like an old warped, cracked mirror, we cannot reflect the image, that can't reflect the image very clearly at all. All fallen people see God that way. And so maybe now you can see that this is why we have so many different views of God out there because we're all fallen. And when fallen humanity on their own, we'll see what that means in a minute, on their own tries to find God it's a free-for-all. And that's what's happening in the world around us today. Everything from transcendental meditation and Scientology, which are the religions of Hollywood, to the deism of academia, that's the religion mainly of academia today, to, to, to the New Age spirituality of Sedona and other parts of the nation. I mean, we sometimes laugh and make fun of those things or get mad at them. Let's stop doing that. Let's understand and have some compassion that as Jesus says, these are the blind leading the blind. These are people who are trying, quite frankly, with good hearts, they want to know God. They're not trying to rain on our parade. They want to know God. And yet they're going about it in the only way they know how, and that is from the bottom up 
They're going to try to discover him. It's just that you and I know something because we have the Bible that they don't. And that is that it's futile. You can't do it on your own. You can't know God that way. Now, if this is where the journey ended, if this is where we were left in life, I admit it would be incredibly sad and hopeless. But the Bible says there is good news. And I literally mean good news, capital G, capital N, because this is not where the journey has to end. Because God knows our plight, he knows our fallen condition, and he has given us provision to find him. Now, some of you are getting sleepy, I can tell by the look in your eyes, and you're already thinking of breakfast. I need you to wake up right now, okay? And, And here's why, because what I'm about to share with you is absolutely significant in your understanding of your Christianity and how you need to posture it before a fallen world, okay? So let's wake up right now because there's a second thing that Romans 11 teaches us and that is that only as God has revealed, that's the key word, himself, can we know him. You gotta hang in there with me. Only as God has revealed himself can we know him. So interesting, after laying out that in our default position we cannot know God and what he thinks and why he decides or what he does, look at how this passage wraps up in absolute optimism and hope. Look at verse 36 one last time. It says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. Think about what this is saying, gang. The Romans, when they originally read this, were thinking, man, sounds like God is really inaccessible. Like we can't know him at all. Can't know what he's thinking and can't know his mind and can't see his actions. Like this isn't really good news. And then Paul says, no, 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 you don't understand. For from him, pause right there. You mean there's things that come from God? Yes. Oh, by the way, and through him. You mean there's things that come through God to us? Yes, and to him. You mean there's things that happen on this earth that go back up to God? Yes, what are those things? All things. You see, God hasn't left us alone. He knows that we're fallen. He knows that in our default position, there's no chance that we can find him. Whether you try it through philosophy, intuition, activism, religion, all the things that mankind has tried, they aren't gonna lead you to God. So God, who loves you, who cares for you more than you could ever imagine, has said, I think I'm gonna reach you instead. And so instead of this being a bottom-up venture, which is how fallen human beings try to make it, watch this, God says, let's make it top-down. Let me reach out to you instead of you trying to stumble in the dark and try to find me. In other words, though in our fallen condition we can't reach God, God who loves us says, I think that I will reach you. And he has decided to reach us. And theologians call this, let's write it on the board because this is a really important term for us. Theologians call this revelation. Simply the idea, not the book of Revelation, that confuses things, the concept of Revelation, the idea that God has revealed himself to this world. Jesus, when he came to this earth, hammered this one home. I love this passage. He says in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, at that time, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants, revealed them. Jesus is taking on the religious leaders here. Do you know that? 
The religious leaders, man, religion just never changes. The religious leaders in Jesus' day took the Old Testament law, didn't really understand it rightly. They, they, they put it before people saying, you have to live this thing perfectly or, or you're not really in the club. And then the religious leaders added a bunch of other rules to it. I know it's hard to picture churches adding a bunch of rules to things, but just go with me on that. They added a bunch of rules to it. And, and before you know it, these people were burdened by religion. And Jesus came along and said, you guys got it all wrong. This isn't about you trying to find God. And so I'm gonna hide these things from those of you who are digging your heels and no, and I will reveal the truth of the Father to those who are open to me, the infants who are willing to claim that in their fallen nature, they don't know what Trump is. One of my mentors years ago uh, when I was in seminary and college was a a very, very well-respected theologian, I didn't know it at the time, by the name of Carl Henry. He was the founding editor of Christianity Today magazine, one of the founding professors at Fuller Seminary. And uh, Carl Henry was listed in 1978, Time Magazine's Theologian of the Year, because they declared that the year of the evangelical. And and I got to spend some time uh, studying under Dr. Henry. And, And one of the things he used to always say, and he actually wrote this as the subtitle for some of his books, and I just love this visual, is he used to say that that God has postured himself toward this world like this. He stands, he stoops, he speaks, and he stays. Do you like that? He stands, he stoops, he speaks, and he stays. See, that's (laughs) revelation. The idea that God knows we are too far from him. So he has decided to stoop to our level and speak clearly to us. And then he stays in that place all the days of your life so that he can continue to stoop and speak. And the only question that we have now to ask and answer in our time remaining is how has God done this? I mean, how has he revealed himself? How has he stooped and spoken and stayed? And this brings us to our third observation today, and it's this, that God has spoken to us in and through his word. He has spoken to us in and through his word. Now, we have to be very careful and very precise at this point because most of you have heard, because you understand Christianese, you understand the language of Christians, you've heard this phrase, the word, And so the second I say that God has spoken to us through the word, you think of what? You think of the Bible. Well, that's partially true, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it's interesting, when I say that God has spoken to us through the word, I mean that he has spoken to us in what the Bible calls the logos of God. That's the Greek word for word, logos. And it's interesting, the logos refers to two things. It refers to the living word, Jesus himself. So God has spoken to us through Jesus and in Jesus And then it refers, yes, to the written word of God, the graphe, the writings that we now have as the Bible. But you don't ever want to to miss one or both of those. So very quickly, look at Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, here it is, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. (laughs) 
Jesus. I mean, people, you know, people ask me all the time, why are Christians so focused on Jesus? Like, why are we Jesus freaks? Why are we always obsessed with Jesus? There's an answer to that, by the way, because without him, don't miss this, God has not spoken. God decided to speak to you by coming to this earth as the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. Do you catch that about Jesus? That he's the heir of all things. He was at creation. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. Theologians didn't invent this idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in the Bible. And so Jesus came to this earth whose existence is eternal and he became a human being. Why? To speak to us and to do something for us, to pave the way for our forgiveness of our sin that only he could do. Simply see, it's God reaching down to us. In fact, let's write this right now on the board here because this is really important that you guys understand it. And let's make it really, really, really bold if we can. There's mainly two pillars of how God has reached us. And that is through his word. And it's Jesus, as we've seen. And then, if there's anything else that God is using to spoke to us, it is the Bible. This is how God has reached out to us. He speaks through Jesus Christ, which is why it's so important that he's your Savior and Lord. Because if he's not, God is not speaking to you. You're not connected to him. Because as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. He's not being exclusive there. He's being as inclusive as he can, as God has reached out to us. And then notice that certainly the Bible is the way God speaks. I love this passage, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. I've taught you guys this before, but that phrase here, breathed out by God, is one word in the Greek. It's actually a made-up word. Paul the Apostle made up a word to communicate this stuff to us. He took two common Greek words, theos, which means God, and noustos, which means breath, and he put them together, theos, noustos. And he's basically saying that God breathed his breath. He spoke through these human writers when the Bible was put together. And so there you have it, gang. This is really important. We live in a fallen world in which we use these mediums to try to understand God. And again, there's some value in that. I'm not saying don't do philosophy. Don't have your own intuition. Uh, don't study religion. Uh, don't be activists. Don't commune with God in nature. Don't understand science. We need to understand all these things. But understand the limits of them. That's why we call this limited view of God. Because if this is where it ends, in your thinking or your experience, you're going to be like everybody else around you. And you're going to be spiritual, but it's not going to take you anywhere. It's only through receiving his revelation in Jesus to you as Savior and Lord and in his word, which is why we study the Bible around here, that you are finally going to come home to God. That's the way that we understand him. This is how it works in a fallen world. Limited view in which all of us struggle with, but God who loves us has reached out to us in Jesus and in the written word. 
Now, at this point, I, uh, I want to share with you one of our famous My Stories. We interviewed a guy recently from the venue congregation named Chris, who has an amazing story of his journey uh, to finding Jesus, or as we'll see in a minute here, to Jesus finding him. And, and I want you to listen closely to his story, because it's very real, it's very life applicable. Uh, you're going to relate to it, but start to think of it as bottom up or top down in how he came to faith. Look up here on the screen. My understanding of God growing up, it wasn't really talked about much in the household. So I never knew much about Christianity or, or God. Even into, you know, most of my adulthood, I guess, to put it most simply, I didn't need God. And so I didn't know God. Things were working out well. I went to college, I graduated, I found my girlfriend, now wife, Taffy, you know, in college. You know, I, I was a good person. Things just worked out pretty easily for me. I believed evolution was the answer. You know, we came from monkeys and one chromosome away, and since it was on TV, it must be true, right? It's, um, scientists say it, and so, so there it is. I didn't really know what my image of God was. I thought, maybe there's something out there. Absolutely, you know, there, there could be, but has God come down and controlled anything in my life? No. I just didn't really think I needed him. I was, I was very content. Taffy and I had our first daughter, Cheyenne. Having a child is, is difficult. The pressures of me having a job, her having a job, now we have this baby. I wanted to go out and hang out with friends. She wanted to have more family time. Slowly but surely, we, by two degrees, started to, to kind of go off a little bit in our own paths. We started to separate our feelings from each other. We were almost becoming more roommates than we were husband and wife with, with a daughter. You know, I almost ruined our, our marriage with some infidelity, and Taffy left. That was the first time I ever really got to see that my world could be turned upside down and how much she meant to me. I drove out to California to go grab her, drive her back. I knew it was gonna be a long road, but I think I was happy enough that she was even willing just to come back. She um, had some girlfriends who went to what I think was Mops at the time. One of them invited her to, to come. And so I think that was the first time that she really heard about who God is. I encouraged her, you go, have a great time. Still not for me, Sunday football's on. Slowly but surely, I got to see what it was doing to her. And she started to change. I decided to, at that point, okay, you gotta go once, at least, just to appease her, be a good husband, be there with the family. And then one day she tells me we're gonna go to uh, dinner with the pastor. We're gonna go to dinner with Rustin. I thought she was crazy. That also was my next first experience realizing that Christianity isn't about just picture-perfect people or the Sunday Christian. We had dinner with Rustin, and he was very real. And it astonished me that now my wife is becoming a different person. And secondly, this man is now pastoring a church. That was the point that I realized that sinners are even more welcome with God. I really started to challenge myself with, with God and, and who he is versus the evolution, because evolution was, to me at that time, facts. 
It was very black, white, this is what happened. And how is God scientific? And so I met with Rustin for a while. I think it was probably about a good year of just going through, what does this mean? What does that mean? What is this story? How does God deal with this? And I think I was still looking for the black and white answers. You know, here's a, here's a problem, here's exactly how you, you solve it. But through the conversations, I came to really realize that it's more of a relationship with God, and it's not rules. One day we're sitting in uh, Whole Foods, having some sushi, and just having one of our conversations where once again, I think I was possibly challenging, and he at that moment was like, Chris, you believe in God. It almost took him just to say it out verbally. I still didn't fully know, but I allowed myself to accept that maybe I do believe in God. No, scratch that, I do believe in God. That was really the first point that I felt, that Jesus died for our sins, so I could get rid of my sins completely. And from that point forward, um, I was absolutely all in. My life has changed dramatically. He is the foundation that we lay everything on now. That allows me to put pride aside when we're in an argument. That allows me to just be wholesome with, with my wife. The fact that we've been through as much as we have and we're stronger today than we ever were back then is, is only God. There's, there's no other way. You know, it's easy to miss if you're not perceptive uh, in Chris's story there, but now you're more perceptive after Romans 11. You know, Chris uh, began his journey in life in that ground-up mode as all fallen human beings do, right? He mentioned evolution and science and, you know, it's where our world is. He's just doing his best to try to understand God as he even got a little bit of thirst from that ground-up position. And did you notice the turning point in the video when they had the Bible sitting there on the table? I didn't tell them to do that, by the way. They, they had the Bible there because halfway through his talks with Rustin, because all Rustin does as a wonderful pastor is present to people, you know, what the Word says and who Jesus is and all of that. Now, Chris's journey flip-flopped. And he's now wrestling from the top down with what God has presented before him. Do you see how that works? You know, a lot of us get so freaked out about trying to share our faith with those around us. Let's take the edge off that right now. Your job is not to try to convince somebody to become a Christian, amen? I mean, it is if you believe that ground up stuff. I see Christians all the time trying to argue from philosophy and science and all these things. Let me tell you why Jesus is true and all this. That's not bad to do. We call that evidentialism, you know, where you give the evidences to try to convince somebody to become a Christian. But that's very, very limited at the end of the day. Because you're trying to convince somebody of something that happened 2,000 years ago in which the, even the evidences are rather limited. No, better yet is that instead of starting from the bottom up, why don't you just put before them who Jesus is and what the Bible says and then let them wrestle with it. That's all we did with Chris. And then journey with them in that. Let them ask all the questions. Why does the Bible say this? And what does the Bible say about that? And really, why, why does Jesus say he's the only way? And, and, and you've got to have answers to that. If you don't, we offer Sunday school classes for you. But you have to have answers to those things. Uh, but it's, the pressure's off you. This is God's deal. Uh, God has revealed himself to the world. The only thing we need to do is let our light shine. Amen? 
Let other people see Jesus in us and let other people wrestle with the word of God through us and God will do what he wants to. And we see a lot of stories around here like Chris's. Some of you have a very similar story. So here's what we're gonna do right now in the remainder of our worship time. We have uh, just about 10 minutes left and in our venues and campuses and here at Shea, uh, we're gonna enter into a time of communion or the Lord's Supper. And as many of you know, communion is all about what? Receiving, receiving the bread, receiving the wine and receiving what Jesus has done for you. What a great opportunity for you as we've talked about God's revelation in this world to receive his revelation to you now. If you've never come to believe in Jesus, maybe today is your day like Chris where he said, okay, I just gotta admit it, I believe. And then you can mark today as your spiritual birthday, take these elements with joy and celebration. For the rest of us, let's just receive Jesus into our lives through these symbolic elements here in a very holy and set apart time. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the revelation that you have given to us in the word who is the living word, Jesus. And then also God, the written word in the scriptures. And so Father, I pray that as we enter into this holy time now with our pastors at our campuses and venues and here with Andrew, that God, you would meet us at this table, meet us in these elements, and may we receive your revelation to us in Jesus, our atoning sacrifice, our friend, our savior, our brother, and then in your written word, the truth that you've given us. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.